Thank you, Daniel. All of our community, we have nine community groups. They're always wide open for everybody. And what we're trying to tell you here is that they're integrated with our missions engagement. Each of them has adopted one of our five missionary partners. Each of them now has a missionary advocate, someone like Daniel. Uh, so if you're hearing about these things and thinking, this sounds wonderful, why doesn't our group do that? Well, you can. You should. Go to your leaders and say, hey, can we start doing things like this to care for our missionary partners? If you're not in a group and you want to, you care about global missions, one way to get involved with global missions is actually to be in a community group. So there we go. Thank you again, Daniel. Um, our scripture passage this morning will eventually be in the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. The passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Our blue Bibles in the baskets in front of you as well. We mentioned this earlier at the beginning of our service. This is the first Sunday in the Advent season. Advent basically meaning uh, coming. And during the Advent season, we are looking back at Jesus's first coming, his birth, as we await and long for his return, his second coming. We celebrate this Advent season in large part to remember, this is really important, what God has done in the past that we might trust him concerning the future as we sojourn through this world as Jesus' disciples. It's a celebration intended to be spiritually fortifying and clarifying in a world that's full of trouble and suffering and disorientation. So if you're not dealing with any of that, then Advent won't do very much for you. But if that describes you, if you're experiencing any amount of difficulty or disorientation or suffering, well, welcome to Advent. We're looking this morning at a very famous Old Testament text, often called the Akedah, which in Hebrew means binding, referring to Abraham's binding of his son Isaac. All four Advent messages in this series involve mountains, which is very much an intentional shout out to the main series we're doing right now at City Church in this sermon on the mount, which we will return to in January. So a lot of mountains going on here these days. I love mountains. I hope you love mountains too. If you don't, you'll love them by the time we're done talking about all of these mountains. And all of these messages, they're not random, let me tell you. They're not random at all. They unpack critically important themes related to the purpose of Jesus's first coming and then what we're looking forward to as we wait expectantly for his return. And by the way, all of these messages during the Advent season will be a bit different than what you're used to here at City Church, stylistically something more like, I don't know, devotional storytelling, you tell me, when we're done with all of it. So here's the scripture reading, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this is one of the more remarkable passages we have in the Bible, and we cannot possibly even uh, explain and, and, and deal with all of it this morning, but I pray that you would guide us as we do our very best by the power of your Spirit to understand this text and then apply it rightly, Lord, to our lives. We do pray for those of us who do feel, if we're being honest, uh, very disoriented this morning, kind of adrift. Minister to them, Lord, especially. Lift up their heads, give them clarity. We pray all of this, we, we plead with you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, golf, sport of golf, something I also enjoy in addition to mountains. It's been called, wrongly attributed to Mark Twain, actually, but it has been called a good walk spoiled. And here we have what appears to be a good hike, very much spoiled, if not obliterated. These events in Genesis chapter 22 might, to be honest, even seem kind of cruel to us. Especially when you know the backstory, especially if you like hiking as much as I do and happen to have a son of your own. Richard Dawkins, the famous or infamous, I guess it depends on your perspective, he, he put it like this. This is Richard Dawkins. He said, This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. Here's the story behind the story. In Genesis chapter 12, and then in chapter 15, we learn that God promised and then covenanted with Abraham that Abraham would become the father of a very great nation, and through that nation, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Some promise. So under God's direction, Abraham, then called Abram, 
and his wife, Sarah, then called Sarai, left Abraham's kindred family and his homeland to make their way to Canaan. Small problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, persisted in barrenness, an incredibly painful situation that some of you have experienced or are experiencing even now. Remember that Abraham and Sarah are not spiritual robots. They're human beings that experience pain in exactly the same kinds of way that we do. And of course, the, the pain in their case was multiplied by the confusion concerning how the um, great nation thing was going to work out given Sarah's barrenness. So Abraham and Sarah trusted the Lord to provide. Depends on how you define trust. Abraham and Sarah, you can see this in chapter 16, decided to help God out a little bit by having Abraham sleep with Sarah's servant, Hagar. And she conceived and then bore a son that she named Ishmael according to instructions given to Hagar by an angel. All this when Abraham was 86 years old. One thing led to another. I'd encourage you to read the full narrative for yourselves. And then 13 years later, God told Abraham, now we're in, we're in chapter 17, oh, by the way, Sarah is still going to conceive. And she's going to conceive that my promise to you might be upheld. The son Isaac will be the child of the covenant, but I'll be sure to bless Ishmael as well. And then a year later, when Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah bore Abraham, his son, Isaac. They had both laughed at God's promise to provide his son, given their old age. And then Sarah tried to deny that, saying, no, I didn't laugh. And then God said, no, but you did laugh. They had both laughed at God's promise to provide this son. In fact, the name Isaac means he laughs. But nonetheless, God provided One thing led to another, notably in chapter 21, the birth of Isaac, and then Ishmael and Hagar's expulsion from their household, and God's promise to look after them and provide for them in the wilderness. And then we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 22, our passage this morning, listening in to God's instructions for Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, only as in born through Sarah, child of the covenant, non-expelled, that son, the son whom Abraham loves, and burn him to death on a mountain. This burnt offering, as it's called here, was an atoning sacrifice. You can read about this kind of sacrifice in Leviticus chapter 1, in which the whole sacrifice, the whole thing, was given to God, and nothing retained for the benefit of those making the sacrifice. Why the more apparent trust this time on Abraham's part? 
Why leave immediately, as in early the next morning, you can see this in verse 3, without, as far as we can tell, laughing or, or protesting? He just got on his way. And now we're getting to a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit of, of preaching here. Notice in verse 1 that God, as the text says, is, is testing Abraham. And you know, this, this is the premier text. The promises that God had made to Abraham were hanging in the balance. And giving up your own son is the costliest cost. Ask a parent, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? And I guarantee you, they will not mention their own death. They will mention the death of their own son or the death of their own daughter. Consider how many times you've heard the parents of a suffering child swear that they would switch places with their kid, if it was possible. Consider that the, the plague of plagues in the book of Exodus, while Pharaoh was refusing to let the Israelites go, involved not the death of Pharaoh, but the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, and every other firstborn throughout Egypt. This was the premier test. But it also wasn't the first test. God had previously called Abraham to leave his family behind in Haran, a massive sacrifice for him and Sarah that should not be overlooked. And then, of course, there was the um, you're going to be a great nation, but you're barren test, the difficulty of which God multiplied exponentially by waiting until... Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was well past the way of the woman, the wording used in chapter 18, before finally giving them their son Isaac. So you see what's happening here. God had been using these prior tests to prepare Abraham for this ultimate test. And tests, by the way, by nature, expose and forge. I saw Jackie Hill Perry describe this as, as reveal and refine, if that's a helpful way to remember it, but I'm using expose and forge to capture the edginess that these tests tend to entail. Tests expose what we really love and what we really trust, and then in exposing these things, God uses these tests to redirect our love and trust in his direction. Tests are trials that forge us spiritually that we might walk more closely with the Lord and really enjoy him as our almighty provider. And something that you will find all over the biblical narrative is that the Lord tends to apportion the biggest tests to those with particularly catalytic roles in God's mission, that he might forge those people into the kinds of people they'll need to be in light of their roles. In fact, here's your, here's your inspirational quote of the day. Here's your tweet. Festoon this with flowers. Difficult trials are often preparing us for even more difficult trials yet to come. So when we spend our lives trying to Avoid difficulty and discomfort. 
if that's our imma, which is very much in the water culturally these days, especially in the West. We are all about avoiding or ignoring difficulty. If that's our imma, in all likelihood, we probably won't be that useful to the Lord. And when we spend our lives avoiding difficulty and discomfort, we'll actually miss out on the joy of really walking closely with the Lord and knowing Him. Perhaps this is counterintuitive, but the most joyful people that I know today tend to be those who have endured the most difficult tasks and then come out of them on the other side with a far more deeply rooted trust in the Lord as their provider. Some of the sweetest joys to be had in this life turn out to be the produce of trusting God as we navigate these storms, especially after we've made it back to shore. Bad actors use tests to trap and to tempt and to destroy. See, for example, Satan in the Garden of Eden when he, he tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God. Good actors, God being the very greatest, they use tests to forge. And such tests are, are backed up by God's unwavering promises. Whatever God calls us to do or to go through, His promises are never in doubt. And you see how this testing process has worked in Abraham's life. By God's grace, we can actually see the growth. We can see the forging. Abraham wrestled big time with God's promises to provide a child, at one point sleeping with Hagar, and eventually laughing when God said that Sarah would still bear a child in old age. Plus, he lied a couple of times about the identity of his own wife for the sake of self-preservation. But now in Genesis chapter 22, he's facing a far greater test with more spiritual fortitude. The memories of God's provision in previous tests equipping him to face the future. So, chapter 22, verses 3 through 8. Abraham and his beloved son Isaac made their way toward Moriah which, by the way, was eventually the, the site of the Jerusalem temple. And on the third day, when Abraham saw the place that God had picked out for them, he asked the young men who had traveled with them to tend to the donkey while he and Isaac privately made their way up to this place to worship. Abraham notably and surprisingly telling the young men that they would both be back. Then, verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And when Isaac asked a very reasonable question about the absence of a lamb for the burnt offering, Abraham answered by, in my, my view, there is some controversy here about what Abraham is implying, but Abraham answered by foregrounding what he had learned about God's character rather than mapping out a detailed path. Isaac God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. I'm not sure what the plan is here, bud, but I do know. I do know for sure that God will provide. Because that's who God is. He is the God who provides. He is, by nature, the God who keeps his promises. And then when they arrived at the place, that is verse 9, Abraham built an altar 
arranged the wood and then bound his son Isaac, putting him on the altar. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son, you know? Imagine that moment. I mean, God is allowing this test to play out to the bitter end. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He, the angel of the Lord, said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. That is, that basically you trust God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. You will not find a more intense, surprising, or profound sequence of events in the entire Bible apart from maybe, let's say, the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Abraham was somehow willing to kill his own son while maintaining faith in God's promises. Isaac was somehow willing to be the sacrifice. There's no evidence here of of conflict or protest. Indeed, if you study Jewish rabbinic literature concerning Genesis chapter 22, which I I think is a very important step in studying texts like these that are very heavenly heavenly, um, commented upon in that literature, you will find, if you study rabbinic literature in in the Midrash Rabbah, some very significant rabbinic commentary concerning Isaac's willingness to lay down his life if God required. We find willing sacrifice so hard to understand because we're so increasingly individualistic and and increasingly self-oriented here in the West. We prioritize ourselves over others and if there's no transcendence, if if there's no God, then death for us is the end of meaning. And then death becomes a cost that's just too great for us to bear. So we read texts like this and we think to ourselves, well, he must have been forced. I mean, this is is child abuse. Remember the Dawkins quote. But previously in history, before the post-Enlightenment West, we might say, that objection really didn't exist. Which might be an indictment on our modern moment, perhaps? But Isaac really did this willingly. And then, of course, God ultimately provides a substitute, a ram, that is a a male lamb, caught in a nearby thicket by his horns. So Abraham took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son and called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The premier test ended in premier provision from the Lord, as is always the case, a test that exposed in the best possible way Abraham's growing allegiance to the Lord, allegiance that entailed, according to New Testament commentary on this passage, 
Abraham reconciling God's command with God's promises by considering that God, this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, by considering that God was able to raise even Isaac from the dead. Resurrection was not really a category in Abraham's day. I mean, we're, this is 2,000 years, just about, before the resurrection of Jesus. And all of this took place even before the prophet Elijah raised the widow's son. You can read about that in, in 1 Kings chapter 17. Yet Abraham was so committed to God's promises that he believed resurrection was on the table even though human beings up until that point had stubbornly persisted in staying dead. You can probably, you can speculate as far as what Abraham was thinking here. You know, he's probably thinking something along the lines of, listen, God has acted supernaturally in my own story before. I know I'll do it again. I mean, if the Lord can cause your wife to miraculously conceive in old age, I mean, can't, can't he do anything that he wants to do? Is, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No, clearly not. And others have pointed out that the Lord had already effectively raised Abraham's promised line from the dead when Isaac was born. Abraham's obedience at Moriah actually shows us the nature of, of genuine faith in the Lord, which always shows up in faithful actions. Genuine faith shows up in faithful actions, and those actions are born out of sold-out commitment to God's character and His promises, commitment that is learned or forged through testing. Those actions don't earn us our right standing before God, but they are a, a bellwether for genuine faith. So much so that in the New Testament book of James, chapter 2, James warns us that faith without works is dead and then cites Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac as the illustration of the quality of faith that James is talking about. Some of us are really being tested right now. And I'm not just thinking generally. I know this pastorally and specifically. Some of us are really being tested right now. We are ascending a mountain in Moriah. And things are looking really bleak and they do not make sense. And goodness do many of these tests get even more challenging when the holidays swing around. Church, remember that this as uncomfortable as it is, this is how God forges His people. This is how He transforms us. This is how He, he builds up our faith. And He's not interested in setting traps. Knowing all of this, it won't, it's not going to suddenly evaporate your pain, but it does give us hope. It does give us even a, a glimpse of joy in the midst of, in parallel to our pain. Even when we're being tested, we know that God is up to something and we know that His promises will hold. The test might involve significant physical and emotional distress, even spiritual distress. I mean, God didn't call off the sacrifice of Isaac until the very last moment and it took Sarah a long time to conceive, even after God made His promises to Abraham. And though the testing might disorient us because tests just... Tests never go the way we think that they're going to go. 
Even though that's true, God is exposing us and forging us. None of it is going to waste. His good promises and his purposes always persist, even when none of it seems good in our own eyes, even when God's promises seem to have failed. Here's why we can take all of this to the bank with even more confidence than Abraham could ever dream. It's a, it's a why that brings us to another story, really a snapshot, this time during the early stages of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John the Baptist, the, the missionary forerunner of Jesus, sees Jesus coming toward him and proclaims, this is John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later in verse 34, John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Son of God came into the world, John is saying, putting on flesh and becoming fully human because He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin part, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, that's, this is not the kind of affirmation that we are looking for. But the fact of the matter is that Every last one of us has failed some tests. I know that'll, that'll preach in this academic context that we find ourselves in. Although maybe none of you have actually failed tests. This is a, a top five public university we have here, and Santa Fe is very strong. So maybe you, you, don't, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Every one of us has failed tests. And what I mean by that is that we've all pursued disobedience instead of obedience. Starting in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, continuing with Abraham, as we've been seeing, even though God still used those tests to grow him spiritually and to teach him obedience, continuing with us, who regularly choose our own way, rather than trusting in God and trusting in His way, for the sake of living well in this world and for the sake of being a holy and set apart people. Enter Jesus, quite literally, who was himself tested, but perfectly passed every one of those tests, and was forged accordingly into the perfectly obedient Son. Here's the book of Hebrews again, this time chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Jesus was never disobedient. So this suffering, this testing we're talking about here that Jesus was subjected to had no purpose in rebuking or correcting. That's not the kind of perfecting we're talking about here. Instead, the testing perfected Jesus in that it prepared him for the ultimate test Namely, the cross. The character of Jesus' life prepared him for what was coming. And well, tell me what you see when we consider the details of Jesus' cross work. What do you see? Jesus, his father's only son, ascended a hill outside Jerusalem, that is, at Moriah, to the place of his crucifixion, 
at the beckoning of his loving father, Jesus ascended the hill willingly, even though in the flesh he preferred another way because he was fully confident that the Father's plan was best. You can see this in Jesus' Garden of Gethsemane prayer in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus carried wood on his back, namely his own cross. But this time the Father didn't relent. This time there wasn't a stop. This time there wasn't a ram in the thicket. Jesus actually did die. An agonizing death on the cross. And then what? He rose again from the dead. Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. And in a sense, Isaac was raised three days after his death sentence on account of the ram caught in the thicket. Jesus was dead dead. Not just like metaphorically dead. He was dead. But rose again three days later. Why? Because as our substitute, he was not only taking upon himself the penalty for our failed tests, He was straight up conquering sin and death and Satan once and for all. Isn't this the kind of Lord you can trust in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your testing? The Lord who caught his own thorns in the thicket to unbind you from otherwise certain death. The Lord who was himself tested in ways that we can't even fathom and therefore sympathizes with all of the tests and all of the suffering and heartache that we're going through. The Lord who actually invites us, even beckons us, Hebrews chapter 4, to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the kind of Jesus who can see you through some testing. So if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in the Messiah, trusting in Him and repenting of self-trust, be so very encouraged this morning. The Lord sees you and He's got you. His promises to you are backed up by the resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God. They will not fail, no matter how Moriah asks life becomes. Things may seem, they might seem to bend and bend and bend, but they will not break. And if you're in the blender right now, and you do not know Christ, maybe you know about him, but you don't know him, I have some really good news for you. You can stop the bargaining now. You can stop pursuing Acts of of penance, you know, in desperate attempts to get right with God and and maybe convince Him to change your circumstances because you've, you've earned it. Jesus sacrificed Himself to end the need for sacrifice, which, as we'll discuss actually in two Sundays from now, those sacrifices were happening at the temple built atop Mount Moriah. 
He sacrificed himself to end the need for sacrifice. So you might feel as though you are as good as dead. And apart from Christ, you truly are on account of your sin. But in Christ, you can be raised even today. In Christ, you can be set free. More testing will still come because following Jesus is difficult and this forging enterprise is a lifelong journey. But even in the midst of all those difficulties, you will have Christ as you're being tested. And God will uphold you. At all times, you will know in the midst of your testing that the Lord will provide. Because that's who he is. The same Lord who provided himself. Provision that will extend into eternity when Christ returns and the people of God inherit and inhabit the heavenly Jerusalem. For I am sure, the Apostle Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.